Hello, and welcome to The Abandoned Carousel. It's the show where I tell the stories of the most interesting abandoned amusements and theme parks in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. This week, we tackle the second part of our two-part series about Joyland, a beloved theme park in Wichita, Kansas. Last week, we covered the first half of the park's history. We talked about the Ottaway family and their first decades at Joyland. This week, we'll discuss the rest of Joyland's life under new management, as well as the park's abandonment. With Herb and Harold Ottaway retired in the middle of the 1960s, Joyland was leased to new owners. Herb's son, Jerry Ottaway, and Stanley Nelson. Now, Jerry Ottaway, of course, should be a familiar name. He was Herb's son, and he had literally grown up around the park. Stanley Nelson was a longtime park worker and a friend of the Ottaway family. He started out as a Dodgem ticket seller, and he met his wife Margaret at the park in the early 1950s when she was a skee-ball attendant. They married a year later. Nelson continued to work at the park over the years, doing bookkeeping and working his way through management as he got his accounting degree at the local university. Quote, My dad realized that he loved the amusement park business, so he decided to go into it. End quote. Said Roger Nelson, Stanley's son, in an interview. Together, Jerry and Stanley continued to manage the park and take it in a new direction. Things didn't always go as planned, especially with Joyland's miniature zoo that operated for a period of time. A lion at Joyland got out after biting its caretaker, and three deer escaped from their pens. The 1960s were also the time for the first major injury at the park, with a girl suing Joyland for about $400 after smashing her teeth on the steering wheel of a bumper car. In 1968, Jerry and Stanley built Joyland's roller rink to the tune of about $100,000, and it opened in July of that year. The skating floor at the roller rink in Joyland actually came from the skating rink at Wichita's Kittyland that had closed earlier that same year. Remember, Kittyland was not the same as Joyland's downtown location, Joyland Central. The rink was 75 by 175 feet and held about 600 skaters. Now, Stanley Nelson continued rising in the ranks of the amusement park industry the whole time. Quote, my dad was the president of the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions, and that was a big deal. He was in the business a long time, and he was just a little park operator, but he worked his way up to become the president. End quote. Roger Nelson, Stanley Nelson's son. In the 1970s, more changes were afoot. The park began to face some challenges. Jerry Ottaway was quoted as saying, quote, It takes more thrilling rides to give amusement park patrons their kicks anymore. People have their water skiing, their snow skiing, their motorcycles, and that kind of thing. End quote. What were the changes that Joyland saw? Well, some were little. The owners built a, a, a cool giant gunny sack slide near the dark ride. 
and others were bigger, more festivals, commercial partnerships. For instance, in the fall of 1971, Joyland actually hosted five days of the Wichita State Fair, which featured a bunch of big country music acts, as well as people like Pee Wee King, Stonewall Jackson, and Leroy Van Dyke. In 1972, Joyland was the filming site for a Kellogg's commercial where they introduced their new Mini Wheats project. And other changes were bigger. In the mid-1970s, Jerry Ottaway decided that he wanted to pursue his interest in the roller rink business, that he was done with the amusement park business. He sold his portion of Joyland Park to Stanley Nelson and went on to build the Carousel Skate Center that still exists in, in Wichita, Kansas. Stanley Nelson and his wife Margaret were now the sole owners of Joyland Park. Now, with this change in ownership and with the changing needs of the clientele, Stanley Nelson was in the market for a new, more thrilling dark ride. At an IAAPA convention, Stanley connected with the noted dark ride and haunted house designer Bill Tracy. Stanley took one look at Tracy's latest concept art, and he placed an order right on the spot, saying he wanted the Joyland facade of the ride to look exactly like the concept art. And this was the Wacky Shack. Now, Tracy died soon after the completion of the Joyland Wacky Shack, which makes it the last complete project with his personal touch. And he had designed haunted houses all over the country in the mid-60s. He was this huge, amazing guy. The Joyland Wacky Shack was the prototype for the Wacky Shack model that the company continued to build after his death, and it was the first such design built. It did have its roots in earlier dark rides that were known as Hell's Kitchen and Devil's Inn. However, the Joyland Wacky Shack was really the first true iteration of the design. Stanley Nelson was a fan of Bill Tracy. He said, quote, Bill Tracy never got the recognition that he deserved. He had a great imagination and a knack for scouring the local area for just the right materials for a ride. If he needed old-looking wood for a ride, he would search for an old building being torn down. There was no sense in creating that look when the real thing could be found. End quote. Now, the Joyland Wacky Shack was installed in the old Safari Dark Ride building, which of course had originally been a Dodge and Bumper Car building. The new Joyland Wacky Shack ride incorporated portions of the old Safari ride, as well as plenty of Tracy's classic dark ride haunted house spooks. The story goes that when construction was complete, Stanley Nelson looked Bill Tracy in the eye, and he said the building was not exactly like the concept art like he'd wanted. Tracy was shocked and asked what the issue was. And Nelson laughed, and he said, the hands on the clock on the front of the Wacky Shack facade were pointing to 2 o'clock, not 12 o'clock. The completed Wacky Shack was an excellent example of Tracy's famous dark ride work. The ride combined eerie sound effects, spooky organ music, strobe lighting, and dim lighting to set the environment. Then guests rode through these different scenes, mostly done in neon fluorescent paints. There were skeletons, cemeteries, even a near collision with this really realistic truck. And on the second floor of the ride, riders were brought out into the bright open air past fearsome painted figurines. Tracy's original Wacky Shack ride had additional thrills. There were rotating cars and track layouts that dipped and rose. But as Stanley Nelson put it, quote, Tracy was into thrills, not maintenance, 
End quote. The rotating cars at Joyland's Wacky Shack were a maintenance hassle, especially for such a small family park. So the cars were ultimately welded in order to stop any rotation. Later in the ride's lifetime, other changes were made, including new fiberglass cars and the removal of thrilling track elements like the dips. Logistical challenges such as people getting out of their cars and removing the scenery, things that were typical of these older rides, were fixed by installing fencing in front of the ride displays as well as more modern computer sensors to control the ride. Now, the Wacky Shack wasn't as thrilling as some of the bigger rides in the same genre that you might have found at a Six Flags around the time, but for many people, the Wacky Shack is one of the more outstanding memories of the park. It was a first thrill ride in a comfortable environment, a welcome into a larger world of amusements. More festivals and commercial partnerships followed in the late 1970s. The 1976 film King Kung Fu was shot on location throughout Wichita, and one scene actually includes several minutes of footage that were shot at Joyland, including the roller coaster. Additional promotions in the late 1970s were things like a two-day Jesus Rock Festival that included free camping at the park. Joyland was open April through October, and the Joyland skating rink was open year-round. The park was doing well. The first generation of Joyland kids were starting to return to Joyland as parents, bringing their own children to build memories of the park. The park continued to be involved with cross-promotions through local radio stations and businesses. The shady picnic areas and opera house at Joyland, with space for performances, speeches, they were huge draws, and so a lot of places held celebrations and meetings and gatherings at Joyland. Late in the 1970s, the date is a bit unclear, the popular Joyland swimming pool closed. In 1979, Stanley Nelson discussed with the local paper his hopes to add a large water slide to the swimming pool, um, citing the popularity of water-oriented rides throughout the amusement park industry at the time. The date of this interview, it's a little bit surprising, since most of the internet sources that I've come across in my research into the park have given 1973 as the date of the pool closure. So it's not really clear. Other reports note that the pool was closed but still standing, and that it was being used for a bumper boats attraction for a short period in the 1980s. Of course, things weren't all fun and games in the 70s. 1977 saw the first death at the park. A seven-year-old boy fell from the roller coaster after standing up in the rear car. Now, this was a regular activity on the ride at the time, despite the famous sign at the top of the lift hill warning riders to the contrary. But this time, the boy couldn't hang on and he was ejected from the car on a hill near the end of the ride. He died almost instantly. As the decade turned over into 1980, things were not feeling as comfortable at Joyland, and it began a time period of ups and downs for the park. Stanley Nelson talked with the local paper, describing the impact large parks had on small parks like Joyland. He said, quote, people are developing a taste for bigger attractions, end quote. It was true that the most popular theme parks were having success because of their location, which was on large highways near major population centers. And this wasn't Joyland. In 1981, high gas prices resulting from the 1979 oil crisis did increase park attendance, 
with people wanting to vacation closer to home. Quote, Joyland doesn't pretend to be the park to end all parks. It's simply a hometown recreational facility that draws from a radius of about 100 miles. End quote. Things were looking downhill again at Joyland with the second of the park's deaths in 1982. The neighborhood around Joyland was starting to take on a rougher vibe, which was reflected in the happenings at the park. A park employee was stabbed to death one day in the parking lot, with several men sneaking into the park and trying to provoke several employees before finding one to fight. Things at Joyland did not seem good. In 1985, the Nelsons undertook one of their last major projects, the log jam. Nelson remembered the ride as, quote, a really big risk at the time, at least financially speaking, end quote. Log flumes were and continue to be popular rides, and Disneyland had announced their log flume, Splash Mountain, around the same time period in the early 80s. Designed by O.D. Hopkins, a well-known water rides manufacturer, the log jam was a big, big investment. It required a river dug into the ground, as well as the classic tall splashdown. Now, the Nelsons tried to save some money, and they took on some of the building for the project themselves. But the investment did pay off. Quote, it was good for the park. It was a good major ride, and it made us feel good to do that. End quote. The log jam was a classic log flume ride. Riders boarded fiberglass boats shaped like hollowed out logs, each seating about four to five riders. And the log jam was tame enough for younger guests. Everyone was guaranteed to get wet. The ride, therefore, quickly became one of the most popular in the park on summer days, particularly with the closure of the Joyland Pool. The 1990s continued on, somewhat tumultuous for Joyland. In 1993, a fire destroyed the Joyland skating rink. Mark one down for the yellow column. But sometime in the mid-90s, a go-kart track was added. Mark one down for the win column. In an interview with the paper around this time, Nelson again drew contrasts with Joyland and bigger parks like Six Flags. He thought that parents interacted with their children differently at Joyland, that they were calmer and more relaxed. Quote, we give them a place to go where they can get their minds off what they're doing, end quote. 1986 did see the addition of Joyland's last new ride, the Sky Coaster. Now, this is a ride consisting of an arch with two lifting towers, and riders are harnessed up, winched to the top of the lifting towers, and then let go, swinging in a huge arc from the main arch. As described in the papers at the time, quote, there is a sudden drop and the scenery begins whizzing by in a sweeping arc at about 32 feet a second, end quote. The Sky Coaster was located on the site of the former Joyland Pool, which had been filled in with cement. And the Sky Coaster was a separately charged attraction, costing $15 to $25 in 1996. In June of 1997, in the middle of the Joyland operating season, Wichita experienced a torrential rainstorm, which led to flooding. Joyland Park was covered in water from the nearby creek to a depth of about six to eight inches. Electrical equipment shorted out. Debris was scattered everywhere. Two of the Joyland logjam cars floated away in the fray. 
One was found a few days later, but the other car remained lost for three years, finally being found seven miles away in the Arkansas River. And when the floodwaters had finally receded, building floors were covered in a half inch of sludgy, silty mud that had to be scraped off and power washed. The park lost 11 critical days in the middle of the season. The park reopened, but it was clear that the flood had put a damper on things. And this flood may have marked the beginning of the end for Joyland. Despite niche marketing that the park had in providing party catering, group picnic spots, corporate event hosting, opinion of the park was starting to take a downturn. And in 1998, it got worse with the final death at the park. A maintenance worker was killed while working near the roller coaster. For unknown reasons, he was weeding with a weed trimmer underneath the roller coaster while it was active. He stood up and was hit by an oncoming roller coaster train. Kansas lawmakers at the time, they didn't require state inspections for amusement park rides. And they did consider the notion as a result of this incident. But it wasn't until a state lawmaker's son died on a water park ride in 2016 that a law was passed to require state inspections of theme park rides in Kansas. Things were getting grim at Joyland. Now, getting into the early 2000s, we are finally arriving at a point where contemporaneous trip reports that were posted on the internet at the time still exist. One visitor describes the park's layout in 2002. Quote, Essentially, Joyland is one long midway. It is a bit odd, as I felt the left side of the park had a classic feel to it. Down here, there was Louis the Clown, a Herschel Carousel, the Eli Bridge Wheel, a Rubitz Paratrooper, the Hopkins Flume, an Eli Bridge Scrambler, and the Roller Coaster. The right side of the Midway featured the seemingly out-of-place Sky Coaster, the Train Station, the Rubitz Trailer-Mounted Roundup, the Zoomer, a Tilt-A-Whirl, Bumper Cars, the Wacky Shack, the Kitty Area, and a boarded-up Western Area. There was lots of open space here, covered by concrete and some downright ugly buildings. Another trip report, this time from 2001, noted the fee structure of the ride. It was $3 at the gate, plus purchase of either individual ride tickets or an unlimited wristband. And its operating hours seem a little short. Weekends only, from 2 to 9 on Saturdays and 2 to 8 on Sundays. At this time in 2001, the park was clearly starting to feel run down. The entire frontier section of the park was closed, fenced off, and decaying under the cover of the weeds. The Post did praise the park's sensibilities in trusting the visitor. Quote, The park's scenic train ride crosses pedestrian paths without the use of gate-crossing arms in at least three places. End quote. And also noted that there was only one food stand and one set of bathrooms in the entire park. Another park visitor in 2001 described the park as shabby. This trip report did praise the roller coaster, however, which was still a park favorite even after more than 50 years. Quote, The 1949 East Coaster Classic was my very first roller coaster. I still measure all wooden roller coasters by the standard set by its first two hills. It wasn't the tallest coaster, nor was it the fastest. It didn't do loops or have any bells and whistles. The lift hill was a tall ride, straight up. As you neared the top, you saw the vintage clown sign that read, Last chance. We'd put our hands in the air, and phew! You dropped straight down. No turns, no tilts. 
just a perfect, straight, tummy-tickling drop. You could touch the branches of the trees if you kept your hands up. Then whoosh, straight up again, and another straight drop. The rest of the ride was a bit quieter, but those first two hills were my favorite part of Joyland. And in 2001, that ride was still incredible. End quote. Altogether, the reports were painting a picture of a park past its prime. It appeared as though the park just wasn't being maintained to its formerly meticulous standards. Visitors were starting to notice, and many of the attractions were said to be in need of extensive repairs. It perhaps should not come as a surprise that in 2000, several years earlier, the Nelsons had begun leasing park operations to another person, one David Rohr. In 2003, David Rohr actually purchased the park from the Nelsons for $1.6 million. It was to be a short-lived operation. In March of 2004, the Nelsons sued Rohr for missing payments and for not paying the park's taxes. And in their lawsuit, they alleged that he was not properly maintaining the park. April 2004 saw another major incident, with a 13-year-old girl falling out of the Ferris wheel and dropping over 30 feet to the ground. She suffered major head, leg, and arm injuries, but was fortunately not killed. And the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission actually got involved to investigate the accident. Quote, we have an excellent safety record. Nothing like this has ever happened since I've owned it. End quote, said David Rohr, who at the time had only owned the park for about a year. A few months later, in mid-July of 2004, the park abruptly closed. The given reason at the time was this dispute between David Rohr and the insurance companies, which possibly related to the Ferris wheel incident. At this time, too, Joyland was still a profitable park. It reportedly grossed around $1.75 million each year at this time. However, David Rohr just wasn't paying his bills. In late July of 2004, the Nelsons again sued Rohr for a second time, again for missing payments on his loan. Employees of Joyland were furious as well, reporting missing paychecks or paychecks that had bounced. The IRS put a lien on Rohr's business for $185,000. By December of 2004, the park was in possession of the sheriff's office. At this December 2004 sheriff's auction, the Nelsons were actually able to successfully rebid on Joyland Park and purchase the property back with a $1.3 million bid, that primarily consisted of collateral owed to them by David Rohr. Now, Joyland had been empty since 2004, closed and sitting there. It sat empty for all of 2005 as well, with gossip flying about the future of the park. Rides were still in place, and everyone just waited. In early 2006, the Nelsons leased the park to Michael Mudenbaugh and his business partner Robert Bernard, of T-Rex Group, and they had plans to renovate and reopen the park by mid-April of the same year. It was a tumultuous time, to say the least. The park did open Easter of 2006, but it didn't have any rides. A contemporaneous park visitor posted about the reopening, saying it was, quote, worse off than it was before. The roller coaster was closed, Wacky Shack was closed, go-karts closed, Sky Coaster closed, the logjam was open, but it didn't work properly. The slide did not have wax, so you could not slide. This image of Joyland was one that people did not like to see. End quote. So Joyland closed again in May for additional renovations. 
the Nelsons were not pleased. They got a court order to prevent Mudenbaugh from entering the park, claiming that he'd missed utility payments. Mudenbaugh countered by saying that he and his company had already spent over $300,000 on renovations. The court battle was lifted after a few days, and the renovations were allowed to continue. Now, Moonbaugh and his T-Rex group did invest money into the park, primarily focused on aesthetics and not really focused on ride safety. The roller coaster received a facelift, white paint, $10,000 worth of wood repairs, and a new name, Nightmare. This included what is, quite frankly, a very tacky skeleton Grim Reaper overlay on the coaster cars themselves. The logjam ride was also renovated with some upgraded pumping mechanisms, and most of the other rides were just left alone. Nothing was done in regards to upgrading the ride safety at the park. However, the park did receive a very fancy blue and pink paint scheme throughout the park. By the end of May 2006, the park was open again from 2 to 9 p.m. daily. That is, for everything except the roller coaster. Apparently, Moodenbaugh failed to obtain insurance company approval for its operation. There also started to be irritated neighbors making noise complaints with the city about the park. There were constant squabbles with the city about permits, and there were rumors of some underage after-hour drinking parties. The park closed for the season in the fall of 2006, and it never reopened. Joyland sat, empty, for all of 2007. Moodenbaugh and Bernard were facing a lawsuit from the lumber company that supplied the materials that were used in repairing the roller coaster, with the CEO stating that it wasn't a huge amount, but it still makes you angry. And the Nelsons were back in court again in 2008, suing Moodenbaugh yet again for $248,000 in unpaid rent and $200,000 in missing or damaged property. Apparently, Moodenbaugh planned to countersue, but he did admit to owing $150,000 to various creditors in Wichita. And the whole thing never resolved. Quote, The unfortunate thing is that a lot of times what we'd hear from people is, oh, you're closing Joyland down. Gosh, I haven't been out there in 20 years. And we'd go, yeah, we know. End quote. Nelson said in an interview to the local paper afterwards. Quote, the support was just not there. And that's nothing against Wichita. It's just a fact. End quote. Park visitors concurred. One stated, quote, I honestly believe that Joyland closed because there was no introduction of new rides. Every park has to have some form of modern rides to keep the interest of the general public. The lack of attendance is why the park went under. End quote. After the park's closure in 2006, the Nelsons unsuccessfully tried to sell the park twice more while simultaneously dealing with court battles against Moonbaugh and the unpaid rent and missing and damaged property. Both of the times that they tried to sell the park, the sale ended with potential owners walking away in the middle of the deal. And Stanley and Margaret Nelson wouldn't sell to just anyone, at least not at first. Quote, he wanted to keep it as an amusement park. My dad genuinely loved the place and he wanted to see it continue, end quote, said Roger Nelson, speaking of his father. But by fall of 2008, the Nelsons were resigned. The park was listed for sale for $2 million, open to any type of development and not just a theme park for the first time. The local paper described the state of the park at the time. Quote, 
Weeds have grown up in the concrete cracks. The wind whistles through the buildings with no windows, and through the ghostly skeleton of the roller coaster, now silent. End quote. While wheels spun on the business front, vandals and thieves made merry at the abandoned Joyland Park. Nelson remembered one weekend in particular, where vandals came in and, quote, just ripped the guts out of the electrical system, and that left us absolutely unable to defend the place because we couldn't leave any lights on, end quote. In 2009, the Nelsons sold several of the rides, including the paratrooper, the roundup, and the big truck ride. Later that year, someone stole the iconic last warning do not stand up sign that had been above the roller coaster at the top of the lift hill. Fires began to be set. Items were stolen, tagged, destroyed, sometimes even on a nightly basis. Quote, it was very hard to watch and very hard to come to grips with, end quote. With the constant vandalism at the park, it was difficult to keep a basic level of maintenance, much less to sell the place. This, in turn, made the banks reluctant to invest in either the refurbishment or the sale of the park. And the city did their part to make the process even more difficult, declaring the Joyland property a flood zone. In 2010 and 2011, an ambitious group of high school students organized the Joyland Restoration Project. Now, this project had ambitious goals for buying, restoring, and expanding the park, and it was hoping to run the park as a nonprofit. And their plans actually involved expanded concessions, a second roller coaster, and even a 10-year plan with the addition of a water park. But their plans never came to fruition. It seemed as though any and every possible idea to save the park was tried. The park was even listed for sale on eBay for a time. And everyone speculated about the reason the park wasn't moving. In an interview with the website Coaster 101, Alex, one of the Joyland Restoration Project members, was asked about why Joyland was still standing after seven years of abandonment. And he responded, quote, I believe that Joyland is still standing because the owner of the park wants to see it come back to life. Joyland is not on the best side of town, and that's why no one has purchased the land and torn it down already. The only things that the land could really serve as is something unique, like Joyland. End quote. Other people agreed, commenting on websites with similar sentiments. Quote, Many people are probably thinking about the neighborhood Joyland is located in. I really think it will be fine there, but many people won't. Security will have to be addressed. People's perception of the area will play a major factor, regardless if there's enough security there. End quote. Others describe the neighborhood as, quote, a scary part of town, end quote. Vandalism continued to rise at the abandoned Joyland Park. In late 2008, paintballers began to tag up the abandoned park. In 2009, vandals destroyed the park's office building. Windows were smashed, papers were scattered, doors were kicked in, and furniture was destroyed. Metal scrappers attacked the park. In a comment to the newspaper, Margaret Nelson said, simply, we're sick. Our hearts are just sick. Later that year, the Opera House at Joyland, known for its picnics, puppet shows, movies, and corporate retreats, was completely burned down by fire. Police suspected arson. In 2011, the bathrooms were destroyed in a fire. Police suspected arson. In 2012, a storage building was partially damaged by fire. 
three teenagers were seen fleeing the park, and police suspected arson. By 2014, the city of Wichita stepped in. They claimed that the Nelsons had failed to properly maintain and secure the premises. Joyland had become an attractive nuisance, and it needed to be demolished. Plagued by constant vandalism, the park was simply beyond repair. What was once a vibrant, thriving family theme park was now a hazardous wasteland, covered in graffiti and weeds, ruinous and sad. One urban explorer commented in 2017, quote, There are heaps of debris everywhere and evidence of fires and graffiti at every turn. It is eerie and sad to remember having fun there, and now it's just an abandoned ruin. End quote. In 2015, Joyland's iconic, or terrifying, depending on the source, their iconic Louis the Clown was discovered. Louis had been lost at the time of the park's 2004 closing, and he'd never been found despite possible leads from the city. Louis had been lost at the time of the park's 2004 closing and hadn't been found in the 10 years since. But finally in 2015, he was found in the home of an employee who had originally maintained him when the park was in operation. The same employee was involved in a civil suit with Margaret Nelson over the purchase of the Wurlitzer organ. Although Louis was recovered, neither the status of the lawsuit nor the current whereabouts of the Joyland Wurlitzer organ are publicly known. A windstorm swept through Wichita in April of 2015. And It's not surprising. The reports over the years were that the wooden roller coaster was starting to be in terrible shape. But this windstorm massively damaged the roller coaster. Portions of the track collapsed. The entire coaster structure was visibly structurally unsound. On July 23, 2015, the remainder of the historic Philadelphia Toboggan Company wooden roller coaster was demolished. The final insult to the once-thriving Joyland Park came in 2018. The Historical Society had purchased the iconic Wacky Shack facade, among other Joyland items, and they were in the process of arranging for transport. On August 8, 2018, the Wacky Shack building was completely destroyed by fire. Police suspected arson. In November of 2018, the land where Joyland once sat was purchased at auction by a private buyer for $198,000. Joyland had been an iconic part of Wichita for the better part of a century, but parts of the park still do remain scattered throughout the community. Despite the attractive urbex abandoned park photos that you're going to see cluttering the internet, many of the park's items were actually saved. So sitting in a warehouse buried under layers of dust, there are piles of park memorabilia. Original Joyland posters, Dodgem cars, ticket boxes, signs. Porky the paper reader's face, it leans up against the wall. Recovered from the home of that same park employee who took Louis the Clown. Elsewhere, the Historic Preservation Alliance of Wichita and Sedgwick County have stored away several of the larger historic Joyland artifacts. These included the large caboose that had formerly resided in Frontier Town. The original neon-animated sign that had once been the headliner of the park at both Joyland Central and Joyland Hillside was also saved. The stagecoach, 
the old woman's shoe, and the original roller coaster ticket booth. All of these artifacts sit dismantled in storage, waiting for eventual restoration. And other local groups also have bits and pieces of Joyland. The Donut Hole Shop in Wichita has Joyland's original open-mouthed lion drinking fountain. And over at the Churn and Burn, an ice cream and coffee shop, you can find several hand-painted Joyland signs, including the Joyland Arcade sign. The owner said that after a dream about opening up the ice cream shop, he saw Joyland signs pictured under his very first web search for ice cream shop. Quote, that afternoon I went and looked at them and put a deposit down before I had even bought any equipment or anything else because I knew I wanted them. End quote. And it's not just the small stuff that's been saved. The Ferris wheel remained in the park until the early 2010s when crews eventually came in to remove it. And today you can find the Joyland Ferris wheel at the Ottawa County Fair in Minneapolis, Kansas a brilliant yellow wheel against the sky. Bucket seats feature that iconic detailed JP on the backs for Joyland Park. And you can also find the Scrambler and a handful of the other rides, including a teacup ride at the fair. Perhaps the most visible part of the former Joyland artifacts is the carousel. In May of 2014, Margaret Nelson announced that she would be donating the carousel to the Botanica in Wichita, where it would be fully restored. In addition to restoration of the horses, the entire carousel is to be rewired, as the copper was stolen by copper thieves. And energy-efficient LED bulbs will replace the original incandescence. The carousel is being restored by artist Marlene Irvin, who has 40 years of experience with carousels. Quote, I have repainted and restored thousands of individual animals, and restored complete carousel machines. This one is special to me because it is the carousel of my own youth in my town. All through my growing up years, I went to Joyland through various outings and always rode the carousel and stopped by the Wurlitzer organ to listen. I imagine I have ridden every horse several times during my lifetime. End quote. Describing the task that was placed in front of her, Irvin said, quote, every couple of years, a new cone of paint was applied over the old, which results in me now having to strip anywhere from five to 25 or more coats of paint, end quote. Each horse takes at least 100 hours or more to restore. Quote, finding and bringing back the beauty that was originally there is never boring, end quote. Botanica is building a brand new pavilion complex in order to house this famous Herschel carousel. And when it's all completed, it will reportedly be one of only five remaining Herschel carousels in the world. Irvin completed the restoration of the carousel horses just a little bit ago in April 2019. And the expected opening date for the restored carousel in Botanica's Carousel Gardens is fall of 2019. Joyland still inspires fond memories today. Everyone who talks about Joyland remembers it in the context of family and community. And this was one of the really nice parts about researching the Joyland Park. For this one, it's not just about the cool abandoned pictures that you're going to see. This one is about family. This one is about those community memories. 
Quote, I grew up at Joyland. First roller coaster, first date, even my first kiss were at Joyland. I have so many amazing memories with my family there. My sister and I always reminisce about our youth and mom and dad taking us there. End quote. Says visitor Stacy Ivy. Roger Spawn, who runs the Joyland Facebook group, remembers a special community that existed within the park. Quote, The park itself held a special bond with everyone that attended that park in many special ways, he said. The rides were the frosting on the cake, but lives were touched and bonds came together. End quote. Roger Nelson, son of Stanley and Margaret Nelson, is grateful to the park's original owners for the work they put in and the risks they took in opening a park like Joyland in Wichita. Quote, The people that originally started the park were some really special people. The Ottaways were very innovative and very handy at what they did, and I always like to give credit to them. The things that they did back then, the risks that they took to buy equipment and stuff, not knowing for sure what's going to happen, they took some tremendous risks. End quote. Nelson went on saying, quote, We did too. That's what it's all about in that game. You spend a lot of money on a ride and you hope like heck it goes, because man, we've got everything riding on it. End quote. True to its name from the very beginning, the amusement park brought joy to Wichita for decades, and it's forever going to hold a special place in the hearts of those who visited or even the people who hear about it. Quote, it was just a nice, pleasant, uncrowded place, and it was something that people just enjoyed. End quote. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I finished my deep dive into the history of the Joyland theme park in Kansas. You can find show notes, photos, and links at my website, theabandonedcarousel.com. Remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcatcher, I'd really love to hear your stories about Joyland and your memories. Email me hello at theabandonedcarousel.com or get in touch with me across social media. On Twitter, I'm at carouselabandon, A-B-A-N-D-O-N. And across the rest of social media, you can find me as at theabandonedcarousel. I'll be back next week with another great episode. So I'll see you then. As Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, Nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.